Hi, I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm also so privileged to be able to present the weekly segment of Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And tonight we are so thrilled to be able to bring to you Robert Stoffel, who is the Director of Communications for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He's been working in communications with the Orange County Sheriff for quite a long time and with Orange County since 1989. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mari. It's a pleasure to be with you. So what does the communications division do? Well, you know, when you think about the Sheriff's Department, probably the last thing you might think about is radio communications. But Orange County is very fortunate. We have a radio communications department that's part of the Sheriff's Department, and we take care of all of the radio system needs for all of the public safety agencies here in Orange County. So not only for the Sheriff's Department, but for all city police departments, the fire departments in Orange County, all of our lifeguards, and all of our public work agencies. They all have a need to coordinate and communicate with each other using two-way radio. And the Orange County Sheriff's Department operates, administers, and maintains a very large 800 megahertz radio system that's used by all of our public safety partners here in Orange County. So that's one thing that we're involved with. We're also involved with other technology items things, again, specifically for the Sheriff's Department and also for other county and city agencies here in Orange County. And some of those things include video surveillance, audio systems. We do things in in the areas of alarms. Um, And we do this in places like jails and courthouses, fire stations, county health care facilities. A lot of these uh, buildings need some of the specialized electronics, and we have a staff that takes care of that. We also engineer, design, and maintain all of our own radio systems. We have mountaintop repeaters that are located all over Orange County, and that's what allows our first responders to talk to each other by radio. And we maintain all of those systems. So it's a very technical group. They do a lot of radio engineering and a lot of technical engineering and and administering of those systems for all of our agencies. Who would believe in Orange County that we had all this going on? Well, we're going to have you back to tell us even more. So thank you so much, Robert, for joining us. Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. David Jevons is the Chief Executive Officer of Iron Key, based in Los Altos, California. 
His career in internet security spans more than 10 years, having held senior management positions at Tumbleweed Communications, Valacert, Teros, which was acquired by Citrix, and Differential. While serving on the CEO's technology console at Apple Computer, Mr. Jevons helped to develop the company's internet strategy. He also worked in the advanced technology group at Apple and ran an engineering project involving advanced operating systems. Currently, he serves as the chairman of the Anti-Phishing Working Group. You can find out more about that group at antiphishing.org, and it's a consortium of over 1,500 financial services companies, ISPs, law enforcement agencies, and technology vendors who are dedicated to fighting email fraud and identity theft online. The group's sponsors and research partners include the American Bankers Association, eBay, PayPal, VeriSign, and Entrust. David Jevons has also testified before Congress on Internet security issues, and he continues to advise the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. He holds numerous patents, and he has a master's degree of science from the University of Calgary, Canada. So we're pleased to have you join us, David. Thank you for joining us. Mari, it's a pleasure. So how did you get to be such a techie, David? <laughs> well, I have a master's degree in computer science, so uh, I guess I've always been fascinated in things that are technical and computers and it probably goes back to my genes, I guess. Well, when and how did you start Iron Key? And tell us what it does. So we started Iron Key in uh, middle of 2005, and we did a couple of years of very intensive research and development. And we released our first product uh, in the middle of 2007. And uh, the product was very simply called the Iron Key. Uh, basically, the uh, the concept behind Iron Key is... A, uh, a device and services to protect your data and to protect your identity um, and security on the Internet. Our first set of products are effectively uh, USB flash drives, which we're all familiar with, uh, hardware encrypted. So they came in one, two, uh, and four gigabyte sizes. We now have eight gigabytes available. And uh, you basically can plug them in, enter a password to unlock them, store all of your uh, personal and business information in a highly secure fashion. And there's also a suite of Internet protection services to manage your passwords on the Internet um, in a very secure way uh, to help avoid phishing attacks and keystroke loggers. And, uh, and then there's a, a suite of enterprise security products and uh, remote management tools as well. So why did you start that? Well, as, uh, as you mentioned, I um, have been chairman of the Anti-Phishing Working Group since 2003 when we started it. It's a consortium of about 2,000 uh, member companies and government agencies from around the world, so banks and ISPs and security companies and the like. And as part of that, I, I travel the world and I really learned the inside story of how the criminal underground is evolving the latest uh, attack technologies and techniques, the latest social engineering techniques. And I've watched this industry go from just hackers doing things for amusement to fully professional online crime gangs. And I really wanted to put together something that was easy to use, that could be used by anyone, that could work on any computer, um, and that could provide you levels of protection and do more than one thing at once. And that's really where the idea came of combining secure USB flash drive with secure identity management, password management, and two-factor authentication all in one gadget that you can put in your pocket. Right. You know, I saw the video. You have a little video on uh, ironkey.com, and it shows how the little USB works and how it's very secure inside, and, and it encrypts the data, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that was really very helpful, very, very important nowadays. Encryption is, is the key to protecting things because we hear about people losing their USB drives, losing laptops, losing all these things. And then, of course, then they have to disclose for the security breach notification laws. So, um, and then, of course, other people are, all the people whose data is on there uh, are exposed to identity theft. So it's a, it's a great idea. I learned that DHS has, has funded Iron Key. What's that all about? So in the uh, early days of the company, we were fortunate enough to receive a contract from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and it was really about next-generation crimeware defense. So the idea was 
to um, basically research the latest uh, technologies and techniques that cyber criminals were using to gather large amounts of malicious software and analyze the attack te techniques, and then to develop ideas for uh, mass market prototypes that could be used to help protect people's data and identity information uh, when they were using computer networks. And we worked on that project for about a year and a half, and then, of course, we, you know, we came up with this idea and, and had a good prototype working, and we basically uh, then commercialized it into the product that we now all know as the Iron Key. So in, in, is Homeland Security using this, the people who work in Homeland Security, is that how they're, they're protecting the data that they're collecting? So we, um, we are working with all different kinds of government agencies on uh, protecting their, uh, their mobile data so that people can work from home and come to the office or be out in the field or traveling around the world uh, in different, uh, different theaters and engagements. Um, so it's not just Homeland Security, but um, all f different types and, and arms of the government, and not just the U.S. government as well. We're working in Europe. We're working in Australia and a number of different countries. Right. So encryption is really important nowadays, and, and people need to have something that is user-friendly. So why don't you walk us through, because we have business people driving by. We have students that are probably more techie than, than any of us, you know, who are on this campus. The young people seem to pick it up quickly. But um, there's all sorts of people listening. How can the average person use the, the USB to encrypt and to protect their information? How, kind of walk us through. So you get this USB from, from Iron Key, and what exactly am I doing? I know I saw it on the video, but kind of walk us through that. Sure. I'll walk you through the personal uh, edition, right. which includes storage as well as um, identity protection. Okay. Um, we have three versions of the product. There's a basic, which is really a, just a pure, secure flash drive, personal, which includes the identity protection, and enterprise, which is designed for companies and agencies to manage thousands of these devices out in the field. Okay. So let's talk about the personal one, um, which is really aimed at the, at, uh, at, at, you know, the general Average. user, not, mm -hmm. not necessarily an IT administrator. Right. Um, one thing that we've done here is we've basically got a, you know, it's a secure USB flash drive. So it just looks like a regular flash drive, although it is in a uh, strong metal case. It's tamper resistant. It's waterproof. It, it looks kind of cool, like a Zippo lighter. So it's a, a very solid piece of gear. Um, and uh, what we've done is we've basically made this thing uh, as iPod-like as we can in that we're trying to make it extremely easy to use. We're trying to make it so that you don't have to install any software on your computer to make it work, so you can use it on different computers. Um, and we're integrating it with these identity protection services in, in almost a similar way as the iPod is integrated with the iTunes service. So you get your, uh, your, uh, your new uh, Iron Key, you have your Windows XP computer, Windows 2000, um, uh, Windows Vista. You plug it into the USB port as you would a regular USB flash drive. And uh, quickly what happens is it, it comes up looking like a CD-ROM and a piece of Iron Key software runs right off the device um, and it says initialize your Iron Key. Okay. Effectively, all you have to do is choose a password, mm -hmm. enter it in twice to make sure you chose it correctly, and hit OK. And basically the, the device starts initializing itself. Um, after about a minute or so of initialization, generating encryption keys, that kind of thing, you're given the option to set up an online uh, my.ironkey.com account. You can choose to set one up or not. Um, and what the My Iron Key account allows you to do is things, for example, like back up your device's password to the service in case you forget the password to your Iron Key. Okay, that's a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> and, and so it can basically take your email address and some secret questions. So if you forget your password, you can come back to the site, answer your secret questions and an email challenge, and then recover your password. So that's an optional uh, service if for some people who may be forgetful or have more than one Iron Key or what have you. And that's protected as well so that no one at Iron Key could come in and take your information, right? That's correct. Um, it's all, all of those are, in, are encrypted on the server, and they're stored in hardware signing modules and all kinds of security stuff around that. Now, the reason it's important um, to be able to recover your password is that these devices will self-destruct if, uh, if a user enters their password incorrectly 10 times. So if you lose your device 
and um, somebody else finds it, they basically have 10 tries to try to guess your password, and then the device will erase all of the encrypted data and lock itself out. So um, you suggest that people have a, a complex password with, uh, with numbers and letters and characters? So we, uh, we that, that's certainly typically st- enterprise practices to have a strong password. The beautiful thing about the Iron Key is because all, there's a 10-try limit right. and it's all implemented in hardware and cannot be overridden, you actually can use a much more simple password because there's no way that anyone can defeat the 10-try limit. Right. The reason that typically people with software encryption say you need to choose the, a funky password with numbers and letters and exclamation marks and things is because with software encryption, there's no way to prevent someone from running a tool to guess millions and millions of passwords. I see. Okay. So the great thing about an iron key is you can put something like, you know, my dog's name and the address digits or my what have you and my last digits and my phone number or whatever, something simple and easy to remember that somebody's not going to guess in 10 tries because because of hardware encryption, we can stop them. There's no way to guess millions of times. Okay. All right. So then what, what about bulk encryption? What is that? Um, well, well, I guess basic- we should finish. I'm sorry. I, I apologize. Let's finish what happened. So, so now we we found out we have our password, mm-hmm. and we we have initialized, and we've even gone online and we've pr- protected our or we saved our password on the Iron Key website. Yep. All right. Now, now there's a, the device basically comes up looking like a regular flash drive. So you'll have your one, two, four, or eight gigabyte area, and you can store files on it just as you would with any regular flash drive or disk drive. You can run Word and save files onto it. There's nothing special or magic you need to do because all of the encryption is done in hardware with no drivers and no software to install on the computer. Once you unlock the device with your password, it comes up as a, basically looks to the operating system like a regular flash drive. Okay. So, there's a, what's, so that's, that's the security of, of your data. You can store your tax filings. You can store your student records. Um, you can store business information. Totally hardware encrypted to government uh, and military standards. Okay, so what what kind of standard is that? Two hundred and fifty bit or what? So is what the- we're using is is AES CBC mode. We're using one twenty eight bit encryption with uh, strong randomly generated uh, encryption keys, and the whole thing has been FIPS one forty two validated, which is a government uh, standard for strong encryption products. Okay, so for those people who are driving by who aren't as is techy. As, as you are, that just means that it's scrambled to the point where it cannot be read. Is that right? Is that what you're trying That's to? correct. It's mathematically scrambled in hardware. Basically, you know, the theory is that if you had enough computing power within 149 trillion years, you might be able to decrypt one. Oh, okay. So that's, <laughs> good. Now, that's good news. So, yep. so like if you have your health files, your personal health files that you mm-hmm. want to take with you somewhere... Um, you can you can keep it on that as well. So, yes, yeah. work files, you know, sales presentations, pricing sheets, any kind of sensitive personal document, tax records, and you know, a lot of we have a lot of uh, lawyers using the product, mm-hmm. um, police officers, bankers, people in the healthcare industry. Sure. I guess the only worry is what they've what we've read about recently, where the uh, when you come through the United States, whether you're an American or not, they can take your your uh, mobile devices and take them away from you and and <laughs> ask for the decryption key. So that's that's the only worry that people have about at least when they're traveling out of the country right now and traveling back in is that perhaps the government can can take these away. That's been the big brouhaha lately. Yep, I mean my my experience with that is typically when they have seized people's equipment, it's usually because those people are under investigation already and are on some kind of watch list. Right. And um, yes, I mean you know you can always plead the fifth and not give your password away, but it might be a long wait in a cold jail cell. Yeah, yeah. So we'll see what happens with that. What about malware? What what is malware and what is the threat? Malware is malicious software that gets on your computer and does things like uh, stealing your online banking passwords. Um, there's a specific type we call crimeware, which is really designed specifically for stealing passwords, and it's become very, very prevalent in recent years. You'll remember some years ago people were all worried about viruses, and they would get on your computer and send spam emails to everybody, and they would spread, and they could delete your files. Well, we haven't really seen much activity in the virus business for quite a number of years. What's happened is most of the people who had expertise in that area have basically gone into full-blown electronic crime or are working with 
uh, typical crime syndicates. And what those people want are credit card numbers, ATM numbers, pins and passwords to your online banking or your online auction sites or PayPal or things like that. So they're going for the money now, whereas in the past they were going for the glory of, of spreading viruses? Is that Absolutely. What, they, yeah. They're going for the money. There's very little um, malware out there that's not about going for the money. Now, we do see some malware that is designed for denial of service uh, to take networks down, and we've been seeing that in the last week um, against uh, Georgia as uh, Russia has been invading uh, that country, there has been a large cyber war um, targeted against uh, all the networks in Georgia, and we believe those are from um, hundreds of thousands of infected computers that are probably running in people's houses, and they don't know that their computer is busy attacking um, another country in the middle of the night. But uh, you know, the primary motivation we've seen is, has been stealing passwords. Right, right. That is pretty scary that, that, uh, to think about that kind of warfare mm-hmm. on top of the other kinds of warfare that we've seen. How about key logging software? Well, so yes, a lot of the crimeware has key loggers in it. That's the prime way that they uh, will steal your password. They will either uh, be tracking everything you type uh, on your computer. And this is software that's largely invisible. Um, Oftentimes, antivirus software cannot detect it. Um, They use a lot of different tricks called polymorphism to hide from antivirus software. So this is stuff that gets on your computer, usually by visiting a website that's been infected or sometimes clicking on a link in an email gets on your computer, it's hidden away, it runs whenever you turn your computer on, tracks everything you type, and whenever you type things that look like passwords, it sends them up to servers on the Internet run by electronic crime gangs. Yeah. Or they will uh, take passwords that you type into your browser at targeted websites, like if you visit a, a certain bank that they want passwords to, if you're a customer there, they will track when you enter data uh, and send it up. And that's one of the things that we really put a lot of effort into protecting against with the personal addition of the iron key. And how does it do that? I mean, so, how, yeah, go ahead. What we do is um, we have a password manager on the device that plugs into um, Firefox or Internet Explorer. And um, when you uh, visit your legitimate websites, it uh, has the option to remember your passwords. It stores them hardware encrypted on the device in hidden storage areas that, are ver- that basically a user can't just copy them off and try cracking them. They're double encrypted with software and hardware. And basically, the next time you go to use these websites, you use the password manager, and it will log you directly into the correct website and only enter your password into the right site. And that password entry um, is not detected by key loggers. Oh, so in other words, what, what you're saying, if I understand correctly, is if I, if I have this iron key and I have my passwords for my bank on there and I want to do my online banking, I go and I use that uh, USB for the iron key and I put that in there. It has my passwords and then I type in the URL of my bank. And then it will enter the password. Is that how it works? That's or? correct. You can either type in the URL to go to your bank, or we you can navigate from the uh, Iron Key Password Manager menu and say, "Hey, I want to log directly into my bank," and it will take you there and log you in securely. Well, that sounds like it would be even safer than typing in the URL on my computer. Yeah. Yeah, because then you know, there, who knows what's what's on that. Now, tell me something. Does like I, I use uh, Spybot and I look for anti-spyware all the time. Will that detect my any keyloggers? I, I know you said antivirus software won't do that, but do, does Spybot detect keyloggers? So um, most of the anti-spyware technology is a, it is a little more sophisticated the, than the antivirus technology. It can detect more keylogging type things. It has different signatures, but. The reality is there is no software product on the planet that protects 100% against all malware or keyloggers. Right. It does not exist because these people are are changing the stuff all the time. Right. I mean, there are literally tens of thousands of new samples per day being churned out across the world that are different, and you can't just detect them with most of these products. So. Um, there is there is no way to 100% guarantee at this time that a computer is not infected with some form of malware. But you're saying that using Iron Key, which if I use it with the the um, the password holder or with the password protector, that 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 in itself will protect me even if there is a, a virus or an spyware on my own machine or on the machine that I'm using. It will protect you against the majority of them, which are typically keystroke loggers or browser helper objects. Yeah. Okay. Again, if, if a computer is 
at, at some level, the operating system is totally infected with targeted malware. There is no way with any technology to 100%, but the Iron Key can give you a whole m- much higher level of security on any kind of infected computer for uh, managing your passwords. Yeah, Especially if you go through the Iron Key to the URL instead of mm-hmm. through the computer. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because I usually tell people, don't do online banking anywhere but home, but make sure that your computer is, you know, safe from spy anti, you know, use mm-hmm. your anti-spyware, but it sounds like at least if you were on vacation and you had to go in and look at your bank, then at least you'd be safer doing it that way. That's right, and the personal Iron Key come with an onboard Firefox browser. Oh, and okay. So you're using the browser on the device. Right. Which, and you're using the password manager, which stores and manages all your passwords securely, hardware encrypted on the device. So you're, you're not using the browser on the computer that you're borrowing. So it adds a whole nother level of protection against malware and browser helper objects and things that may be running on that computer that you're using. So let me ask you another question then, Dave. So if, if Firefox has, a, has an update or something and you're using your Iron Key, will it, will it download the, uh, any updates? Yes. Oh, okay. Let me just introduce you again because people driving by was wondering who is this brilliant technologist here. And we're speaking with Dave Jevons, who is the CEO of Iron Key. And you can learn more about him at ironkey.com. Let me ask you another question. What are your patents in? <laughs> you have several patents, I, I read. So what do you have patents in? Oh, yes. Well, I've been um, there. It's all in computer science type things. So parallel computing, um, secure email. Oh. And uh, and then, of course, at Iron Key, we filed a number of, uh, of patents around some of the technology here as well. Right. You were talking about authentication as well. Tell us about what is strong authentication. So strong authentication is a concept that has been widely used in enterprises, um, in banking, in Fortune 500 type companies for a number of years. And it's basically the idea uh, that to log into a website or to... A, a network, a VPN, for example, you need something you know, which right. would be, for example, your name and password, mm-hmm. and something you have, which would be, for example, a device that you plug into the computer that can authenticate to that system. Therefore, if somebody does get your name and password, either through malware or phishing or you wrote it down on a piece of paper and left it in the hotel room. Um, they still cannot log into your website or bank account because they need to have that physical authentication device. Right, right. So that has typically been restricted to enterprise users. They're typically difficult to deal with, expensive. You have servers you have to manage. You know, they they're really have been designed for corporate environments. And, and any of the listeners today who... Um, you know, work in large corporate environments, they may be familiar with these devices. You either plug them in on the USB or they look like a little clock and they display a, a, a numeric password that changes every 60 seconds. Right. So you need to have the device and you need to have the password to be able to log in. So that's what strong authentication is. And what's really interesting about the Iron Key concept is we've actually taken all of this data encryption technology, password management, but we've also integrated strong authentication into the devices as well. And the idea here is to, over time, make that more and more available to users in a completely seamless and easy-to-use fashion. So what you mean by that is, let's say that I wanted to authenticate with my credit card company or with a bank. Would they then, they would recognize the USB as a form of authentication besides my name and my password? That's correct. That's correct. Each of these uh, devices is provisioned with digital certificates. We, uh, we've actually done a partnership with RSA Security, so enterprise users can use them as RSA Secure ID devices. And um, next month, we'll be announcing some other new uh, identity management security uh, technologies that will all be integrated into, um, into the device, into the identity manager on the device. So let me ask you, a lot of people don't know what digital certificates are and, and how they're used. Why don't you talk about that for us? Well, our goal is not to educate anyone about what digital certificates are. Our goal is to make it invisible and super <laughs> easy. easy to use. <laughs> I think that's the hard part. We hear all these things, and especially people in my generation, you know, it's like, okay, how, what are all these things and how do you use them? But yep. you're, you're better off if you just, it's so easy to use that you don't have to worry about it. It's, it's just there. Yeah, and that I think... I think is one of the things that sets us apart from a lot of the security companies that have typically been um, on the market is 
you know, most security companies come at it from the mindset of um, giving something to an enterprise user, an IT person. Um, there's not that many that are really focused on the end user, and and there's even fewer that are focused on let me make security pretty much invisible and super easy to use, so you don't even have to think about it. No, that's brilliant. Yeah. So just to answer the question for the technical folks out there, if they care, certificates are basically um, secret encryption codes that are, in, in, are managed on devices, and they allow you to basically digitally sign uh, information. So a server that wants to know that it's, it's you basically asks the Iron Key device to sign electronically a piece of information and it signs it and sends it back. That is an unbreakable cryptographic code, and you cannot copy it or spoof it. So you know for sure it's that device. Well, and we, that is the way that, that's the way that strong authentication and certificates work. Right. So that helps with uh, identifying who we are. I think that's the huge issue on the Internet. You, you really don't know who you're, you're dealing with on the Internet. And so that, that, how is that going to be used with ID management? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing about, about the Internet is you have this issue of both um, authentication. There are times when you need to know who the person is, right. and the person needs to know that they're dealing with that website. So, for example, online banking, uh, using my PayPal, even accessing my email. I'd like, you know, that it's only me who can access it. Right. But then there's, of course, the flip side of it, which is the anonymity and privacy side of it, which is, there's times when I want to go use the Internet, and I don't want people sniffing my transactions, knowing where I'm going, tracking my behavior. And so the Iron Key, a personal edition, provides both of those capabilities. So how does that work? How can I go anonymously? So we have a secure session service as well that comes with the personal device. Um, that integrates with the onboard Firefox, and that basically triple encrypts all of your web surfing uh, activities that when you're using the onboard Firefox, so that if there is a, let's say, a rogue um, uh, wireless that I'm on, or I'm on an, uh, using an ISP in a hotel and somebody's sniffing the network, they're not able to see which websites I'm visiting or which webmail that I'm visiting. Oh, so it's invisible, or is it just, is the IP address just, um, is that, Encrypted is that what it yeah, is? Yeah, they go into they go into our network cloud of servers, which are located around the world. So they know that they they cannot track where your end result is because that traffic's moved around through several servers and then delivered to the website you're trying to go to. Oh, so they can tell that it was Iron Keys server, right? But they can't tell where it was from. Absolutely. Is that what you're saying? Yep. Wow. So, um, how could federally identity protect? Yeah, how could uh, federated identity protect online privacy and explain that to us? Well, so uh, along these lines of finding ways that we, we can strongly keep people out of your accounts that aren't you, but we can protect your privacy, there's this concept of federated identity that Microsoft and other people have been talking about for a while. And that's basically where you have um, a site who uh, knows who you are, for example, might use digital certificates to prove that it's you possessing that device. And then they log you into other websites and provide credentials to other websites to log you in. So the idea here is that you don't have to give all your personal information out to every website you want to, to do business with or to right. have a blog account at. Uh -huh. You'd have more of a, of a, of a set of uh, sites that could uh, basically vouch for you and make claims for you, for example, I'm over 18, or I'm the same person that you know set this account up, or that kind of thing. So it's it's an evolving concept, um, but I think the key here is you need to have the ability to uh, both one be able to do private transactions, and two still be able to identify yourself when you need to in a in a, in a strong and provable way. Yeah, I think for me as one who values privacy, I would rather manage it myself with something like Iron Key than give all my information to a third party that is going to manage it for me. I tend to agree, but there's all types. Yeah, but there are. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about, you know, a lot of people do a lot of work, like even on banking or they do sensitive work at hotspots. How risky is that? Well, I think it can be reasonably risky. The the If you're doing any kind of non-encrypted traffic, uh, that's obviously a pretty bad idea. So if you're sending passwords to a webmail client or logging into something that's not over an SSL connection, that's a very bad idea because 
pretty much trivial to sniff traffic over a uh, over a wireless hotspot, and you you really don't know who's operating those hotspots most of the time. There's no way to prove who's operating them. Um, the next one is that those hotspots themselves can get infected, and in fact, uh, Marcus Jacobson at Indiana University has shown kind of a war driving technique where he he could basically infect 80% of the wireless hotspots in a city just by driving around and changing administrator passwords. Oh, great. Yeah. (laughs) And and what that allows you to do is you can redirect people's traffic to other websites. They think they type in the the URL of the website they want to go to, and a, a malicious hotspot could actually redirect your traffic to um, to a fake version of that website, and you would have a really hard time knowing that you weren't on basically a, a phishing site or some kind of proxy right. site. like at your own bank. Yep. Now, how? tell me, would Iron Key protect you from that if you were using the Iron Key USB? Yes, yes. if you're using Iron Key with Secure Session Service on, um, we route all your traffic encrypted through that site. We authenticate from the client to the server. So if they try to, one, they won't know which website you're going to. So they can't route your banking traffic to the wrong place because they won't know it's banking traffic. Two, we uh, control the DNS server so that, that they can't modify uh, the, the banking uh, lookup to send you to a, a bogus site. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what, what about if the entire hotspot is infected? Well, if the thing's completely infected, then the secure session service will not be able to verify the server at the other end, and it will not it will not take you to any bogus website. It'll basically give you a an error message uh, that it can't connect to our server. So, if they want to try to reroute all traffic to a malicious place, um, at least you won't be fooled. Oh, so what'll happen is you basically have an error message, and then mm-hmm. would the person call an eight hundred number, or would they do something else and say, "Gee, why isn't this working?" Try a different hotspot. Yeah, or go home. Go home. <laughs> go home and do work. Yeah. Yeah. Recently, there's been some issues when we knew about you know when uh, the 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 Olympics in China and all of the privacy issues mm-hmm. in China. Um, what about that? What about the concern of privacy for visitors in China and even other countries that are, that are not as privacy conscious as we would hope they would be? Well, there's definitely um, corporate and state-sponsored uh, surveillance of Internet use. Um, there was a senator recently who came out and said that um, they had been told by the Chinese government that they had installed Internet monitoring uh, systems in all of the major hotels in Beijing to track the internet traffic of uh, visitors uh, to see the Olympics, and and some countries, you know, notably China, but others um, have co- uh, basically government-run firewalls where they filter uh, traffic that that uh, people can look at and they track it. And you know, if people are uh, doing things that they don't like, you know, there's been instances of bloggers and others who've been thrown in jail. Right. Again, would the Iron Key protect you in that matter too? Would you, if if that, um, if if the government was capturing this, the uh, you know the 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 traffic there, would how would Iron Key work? Would that stop this, or would it just give you another error message, or how would it, that work? Well, if you uh, if you were traveling in a country like China and um, were using the Iron Key Secure Session Service, then uh, yes, your web traffic uh, would be encrypted. Generally, you're going to be able to get out, um, you know, to get back to, to read your webmail or visit your corporate site. Um, and, uh, yeah, they won't be able to, to uh, sniff on that traffic. And if they do block it all, well, then at least you'll know that you're being spied on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, how can a user be sure that no footprint is left or, or a public or untrusted computer? Well, if they're using the Iron Key Personal Edition, as I said, it comes with a Firefox browser, password manager, Secure Sessions, all of that runs off the device and does not install software or leave cookies or things on the computer. So make sure you're using the onboard uh, browser and Secure session service. Now, how easy is it to, to learn how to do all these things? Super easy. You basically <laughs> click on the little Firefox button in the control panel and boom, it fires up and there you go. Wow. What are the uh, the border, the ramifications of, of the border searches that we were talking about before and the portable media? That That's pretty scary stuff, even in our own country. So, you know, you've worked with Homeland Security and others. What are your thoughts, and especially with regard to all you've done in this field? 
Well, I think that, you know, technology uh, sometimes is a double-edged sword, and I think that people have a legitimate uh, need for, for privacy and for secure communications and to securely move data. Companies absolutely require it, as do governments. There were people, you know, are carrying social security records and corporate files all the time. All that information must be protected. Um, on the other hand, you know, at, when you're crossing into uh, other countries, um, whether in or out of the U.S., but into other countries as well, um, you know, those folks are trying to protect people against terrorists and, and other folks, and they do have watch lists of people that they want to see what information they're moving. So I think they have a, you know, that's why those policies are in place. Yes. And, um, yeah, and if the good guys can use it, the bad guys can use it. Yep. Well, if you're a bad guy, you know, don't travel across borders. Right, right. Let me ask you about the anti-phishing working group. You're the chairman of that. Tell us about that group. I, I actually happen to be a member as a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. So tell tell our audience about that group and what you're doing. The uh, anti-phishing working group is a nonprofit identity theft prevention organization. Um, we're the largest on the internet. We have couple thousand member companies and government agencies. Um, it was formed in 2003. Um, and, uh, and basically the goal of this nonprofit is to help prevent email spoofing and identity theft on the internet. We run uh, conferences around the world many times a year uh, to um, work with uh, researchers and the security community and um, uh, we bring together different parts of the community. So we'll bring government, we'll bring law enforcement, ISPs, banks, uh, security vendors all together in a in a private and uh, vendor neutral forum to discuss um, what the bad guys are doing, what the good guys are doing, where the threats are, and uh, and we work with uh, folks like Federal Trade Commission and others on consumer and uh, corporate education campaigns about best practices for uh, preventing identity theft and electronic crime. I wanted to ask you. I have heard different percentages of of how how many people are really uh, caught by by phishing. What is the percentage of people that that do get um, spoofed? Well, it's very difficult to know. Um, what we can track is the amount of phishing email that's out there, at least mass market phishing email, um, and that is uh, billions uh, of emails. Pretty much, some people will 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 tell you it can be billion emails a day. But uh, I mean, it's a very high high volume. It's, it's over 1% of spam is phishing, typically. Um, and spam's just been continuing to grow out of control into tens of billions of messages a day. Um, and so the numbers who fall for it, well, you know, that's really about um, do I have an account at that company? Have I ever been phished before? Did it get through my spam filter? And, you know, it depends on the type of fish. Sometimes it's a tenth of a percent of the people will fall for it that receive it. Sometimes if it's a spear phishing attack where they know your name, and maybe they raided a database and they have your name and your email address and they know what account you're at. Right, that looks more authentic. You can have between 40 per, 40% on the worst down to 17% studies have shown. So, you know, some of the banks do send emails that are looking almost like a phish email. Is there any kind of maybe a, a standard that the anti-phishing working group sets up and says, you know, these are the... Uh, uh, standards that we suggest that you do when you send an email to your clients? We have been working aggressively on education campaigns with banks as one of the constituents to try to educate them to not send emails that look like phishing. Um, I think we've made a lot of progress in that area, but um, there's still more work to do. The the marketing department in a bank is typically different from the security department. Exactly. They don't talk to each other. They have different <laughs> business goals. And so the security guys may be very well aware that they, you know, the marketing guys shouldn't send emails that look like fish, but the marketing guys might be in another city or country even. Yeah, I think it's kind of scary because sometimes I'll get something and I won't say what bank, but if I pay a bill, I'll get something from them that they got my payment and then there'll be like a URL in it for me to click if I have any questions. And I would have paid something, but I guess I won't even touch it. I won't even go near it. I'll just delete it. Is it better to delete a phishing email or to send it to, uh, you know, the Tra Federal Trade Commission or your bank? What do you think? Well, I, you can send it to the bank IT department. Um, the other place you can send it is reportphishing at antiphishing.org, and then we forward that to a number of different security groups, researchers, and oftentimes to the bank itself. Now, does IronKey protect you from phishing? 
There's no way to be 100% protected from phishing. What we can do is if you click on a phishing link and it asks you for your password and you're using the onboard password manager, it's smart enough not to enter your password into the phishing site. How does it know to do that? Well, it tracks the URLs of where it actually initially entered the, uh, where you actually initially entered the password when you first set it up. Oh, okay. So if, if, so are you suggesting that if you have Iron Key that you use it whenever you surf the internet? That's my hope. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So it isn't just for the storage or for moving uh, materials from uh, documents from one computer to another. It's really uh, you're, you're asking people and suggesting that people use it as a security tool when they surf the Internet. It's a personal security device. That's right. Oh, very, very interesting. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us. I know that you have a meeting to go to. And so we appreciate that. And tell us where we can learn more about Iron Key. You can learn more at www.ironkey.com. Well, thank you so much, Dave. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Mari. It's been a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. And we've just been listening to David Jevons, who is the Chief Executive Officer of Iron Key, which is based in Los Alos, California. He's quite a techie, so we need to talk about some issues that will help us know how we can protect our portable devices for data security. So in addition to taking precautions to protect your portable devices, it's important to add another layer of security by protecting the data itself. So people may ask, why do you need a another layer of protection? Well, the answer to that is, although there are ways to physically protect your laptop, PDA, or other portable device, there's no guarantee that it won't be stolen. After all, as the name suggests, portable devices are designed to be easily transported. The theft itself is, at the very least, frustrating, inconvenient, aggravating, unnerving, all that. But the exposure of the information on the device could have serious consequences. Also, remember that any device or any devices that are connected to the internet, especially if it is a wireless connection, are also susceptible to network attacks. So what can you do? Well, here's some bullet ideas that you can do as you're thinking about this. First of all, use passwords correctly. In the process of getting to the information on your portable device, you probably encounter multiple prompts for passwords. So take advantage of this security. Don't forget about it. Don't choose options that allow your computer to remember passwords. Don't choose passwords that thieves could easily guess. Use different words and different passwords for different programs and take advantage of additional authentication methods. Consider storing important data separately. There are many forms of storage media, including floppy disks, zip disks, CDs, DVDs, and removable flash drives, also known as USB drives or thumb drives. Remember, even those can be encrypted. By saving your data on removable media and keeping it in a different location, for example, in your suitcase instead of your laptop bag, you can protect your data even if your laptop is stolen. You should be sure to secure the location where you keep your data to prevent easy access and, of course, encrypt it. So let's talk about encrypting files. By encrypting files, you ensure that unauthorized people can't view data even if they can physically access it or steal it. You may also want to consider options for full disk encryption. And this prevents a thief from even starting your laptop without a paraphrase or a password. When you use encryption, it is important to remember your passwords and passphrases. If you forget or lose them, you may lose all your data and then you're out of luck. Install and maintain antivirus software and remember to use anti-spyware. Protect laptops and PDAs from viruses the same way you protect your desktop computer. Make sure to keep your virus definitions up to date. Install and maintain a firewall while always important for restricting traffic coming into and leaving your computer. Firewalls are especially important if you're traveling and utilizing different networks that aren't your own. Firewalls can help prevent outsiders from gaining unwanted access. And then, of course, back up your data. Make sure to back up any data you have on your computer onto a CD-ROM, DVD-ROM, an encrypted thumb drive, or network. 
Not only will this ensure that you will still have access to the information if your device is stolen, but it could help you identify exactly which information a thief may be able to access. You may be able to take measures to reduce the amount of damage that exposure could cause, and this could be for personal data and, of course, employee data. Let's also talk a little bit about cybersecurity for the electronic devices a little bit more. When you think about cybersecurity, remember that electronics such as cell phones and PDAs may also be vulnerable to attack. Even your iPod. Take appropriate precautions to limit your risk. So you may ask, why does cybersecurity extend beyond computers? Well, actually, the issue is not that cybersecurity extends beyond computers. It is that computers extend beyond traditional laptops and desktops. So a lot of things that you carry already are computers. Your Blackberry may be your computer, your cell phone, your iPod. Many electronic devices are computers, cell phones, PDAs, even video games and car navigation systems. While computers provide increased features and functionality, they also introduce a lot of new risks. Attackers may be able to take advantage of these technological advancements to target devices previously considered safe devices. For example, a fraudster or an attacker may be able to infect your cell phone with a virus or steal your phone or wireless service or access the data on your PDA or your BlackBerry. Not only do these activities have implications for your personal information, but they could also have serious consequences if you store corporate information or business information on the device. What types of electronics are really vulnerable? Well, the answer to that is any piece of electronic equipment that uses some kind of computerized component is really vulnerable to software imperfections and vulnerabilities. The risks increase if the device is connected to the internet or a network that an attacker may be able to access. Remember that a wireless connection also introduces these risks. The outside connection provides a way for an attacker to send information to or extract information from your device. So what are some things that you can do to really protect yourself? Well, remember physical security. Having physical access to a device makes it easier for an attacker or to extract or corrupt information. So don't leave your device unattended in public or easily accessible areas. Guard it at work, guard it at home, and keep that information secure. Keep your software up to date. If the vendor releases patches for software operating your device, install them as soon as possible. So if you get an email that there is a patch ready to download, think about doing it immediately instead of forgetting about it or asking your computer to tell you later. These patches may be called firmware updates. Installing them will prevent attackers from being able to take advantage of known problems or vulnerabilities. Use good passwords as we talked about before. You might want to consider using letters and numbers and characters, 8 to 12 numbers. So choose devices that allow you to protect your information with passwords. Don't just put 0000. Select passwords that will be difficult for the thieves to even guess. And use different passwords for different programs and devices. I know it can be difficult to remember, so write those passwords down and keep them in a locked cabinet. If you decide that you want to use them on a computer, you must at least encrypt them. Do not choose options that allow your computer to remember your passwords as many people do because we can all get very lazy. Disable remote connectivity. Some PDAs and phones are equipped with wireless technologies such as Bluetooth that can be used to connect to other devices or computers. You should disable these features when they're not in use. And all of us now, at least in the state of California, have to use our Bluetooth when we're on the phone and driving. So when you're not on the phone and driving, you must disable. 
And then of course we get back to the issue of encryption. Some people think that encryption is too difficult, too challenging, but there are many new software user-friendly programs that we can all use to encrypt our files. Although most devices do not offer you an option to encrypt files, remember you may have encryption software right on your PDA. So you need to look for it or at least download it. And if your PDA or your device is, is does not have it, you may want to consider upgrading and getting something that does have the encryption. If you are storing personal or business information, client information, make sure that you are careful to seek out ways to encrypt those files. You may be liable if your PDA or if your laptop or your electronic device is acquired by an unauthorized person and it has personal data. According to many of the security breach legislative laws throughout the country, if you have electronic data that has been acquired by an unauthorized person and you are clear that this has happened and they've gotten that data and it is not encrypted, then you have a duty to notify all of the people whose information was acquired by that unauthorized person. You may have to do it by phone or fax or letter or if there are too many of them, you may have to put it in the public newspaper. So better to take the time on the front end to encrypt the data because most of the state laws now relieve you from the responsibility if you are encrypting to a proper level. By encrypting files, again, encrypting to a level that is adequate, you ensure that unauthorized people can't view data even if they can physically access it. When you use encryption, it's important to remember those passwords. So if you have taken the time to encrypt, you must also take the time to remember those passwords or store them in a safe place so that no one can get access to those. If you use your password as the key to decrypt, you don't want to give everyone the key to unlock the door to that very sensitive data. So think about when you are sending emails, either on your BlackBerry or on your laptop or your desktop. Never send any sensitive information in an email which can be seen by others unless you encrypt. If you have files on your computer that have sensitive information about yourself or your clients, you want to remember, again, to encrypt those before you attach those to your emails. These are just some of the things that we're going to follow up on with you. And you can very easily get user-friendly software to help you to encrypt. And then, again, to be very careful about limiting access to that sensitive information, whether you're at home or at the office. Thank you so much for joining us on Privacy Piracy, and be sure to email us at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, where we can find out about what your interests are in learning about privacy in the information age. When you visit that website, you can download podcasts of previous shows, see our upcoming guests, and listen to archived interviews. Thank you so much for joining us. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here. Good evening. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. here on 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And we're welcoming back Robert Stoffel, who's the Director of Communications for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. He's been working in communications for Orange County since 1989. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Maury. Nice to be here. You know, last week we talked about the communications division and what they do, but tell us a little bit about the history of the communications division. Well, communications in Orange County, as far as public safety communications, actually dates back to 1934. Wow. And in 1934, 
the County Board of Supervisors at that time approved a one-way radio transmitter that would allow transmissions to go out to the field, but the technology wasn't there yet for someone to pick up a microphone in their patrol car and talk back to the dispatcher. So one-way transmissions is what we started with in 1934, and over the years, as technology improved, Orange County moved along with that technology. We've had what's known as an interoperable radio system for many, many years, and for most of your listeners, that may not mean anything, but what it does mean to all of us in Orange County is that we have the ability to have our first responders, our law and fire and lifeguard and public works personnel responding to a major emergency, the ability to use one radio and talk to each other and coordinate that routine day-to-day emergency or something major like a wildland fire in the Santiago area that we had last year, or perhaps something even as devastating as 9-11. What's unique about Orange County is that for many years we've had an interoperable system in place. Unfortunately, you read about some of these major disasters around the country. They did not have a communication system as such and had difficulty in coordinating that response. Well, that makes us a lot safer. Absolutely. Tell us more about the different services you provide for the sheriff in the county. You know, one thing that might be of interest to your listeners is we have a volunteer group of amateur radio operators. These are folks that use ham radios. And we have a group called the Radio Amateur Civil Emergency Service, called hmm. RACES for short. That's anybody that's got a ham license and they'd like to to provide a service to the public and to the public safety community. They can use their amateur radio equipment, and we use those folks in emergencies and disasters to help uh, provide communication services above and beyond what our day-to-day systems provide. And if you have someone out there that thinks they might be interested in that, they can go to our website, which is www.ocraces which is short for OC Races. So www.ocraces.org, and they can learn more about the Races program. Well, terrific. We appreciate all the great work that you're doing and keeping in communication to keep us safe. Thank you very much. So thank you, Robert. We'll take care. Thanks.